Welcome to the Volusi Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. There is a very popular trope in media, and it's the noble criminal. It's the criminal who isn't robbing for self-gain. It is because they've been put into a very difficult situation and need to rob and steal to help someone else. So the classic story is going to be, my child is sick. I have to steal X amount of money to pay for a procedure or medicine or something like that to save her life. And it's hard to hate someone who's doing a bad thing for the benefit of an innocent child. And so that's sort of the juxtaposition they've set up. Society is cruel because it will not help this child. So I must do everything in my power to help this child. And there have been a couple movies like that. I've seen ones where like guys rob banks and it's to get enough money to uh, for a surgery for a kid. Um, they only steal from rich, evil people, which again adds another element to it, sort of a Robin Hood kind of thing, so that they can save innocent lives. And I realized the other day that that story really can only happen in America because every other sort of first world country has some form of socialized Medicare. So in Canada, you wouldn't have to rob banks to save your child because healthcare is just covered. You would just take your child to the hospital. I'm not saying Canadian healthcare is perfect. Uh, it has its problems. There are long waits. You will maybe be put on a waiting list, but you will not have to sell your house. Your child will go to the hospital. It might be a little later than you would hope, and they will get the treatment they need. And that's it. There is no robbing of banks. There is no stealing from the rich to save an innocent life. And it's the same in Europe. In other countries, in other in European countries, this story doesn't work because that system is not in place. You would not be burdened to pay for million-dollar medical procedures because the state has collected taxes and part of your income, part of every citizen's income to create some sort of Medicare system so that you can get the treatment you need. So suddenly, I forget what movie I was watching because it was on the airplane when I came back from Canada. But this was the premise of the story. It was the noble hero doing it for, to, to benefit other people. And about halfway through the movie, suddenly lost all relatability because I was like, well, in Japan, that would never happen because you would just go to the hospital and they would just figure out when they could do it and then they would take care of you. And it wouldn't happen in Canada because the same thing would happen. So any country with a socialized healthcare system, which is, again, quite frankly, most of them, the premise of being put in a desperate situation to save someone else doesn't work. And so I guess the challenge there is how could I come up with a socialized Medicare version of this story? And the only way that works is if the government is intentionally evil, which then becomes a dystopia, which again 
is very hard to relate to in the real world. So it's a premise that starts to fall apart unless you're American. And yeah, I'm kind of bashing America again because they come up with these stories all the time because you have those stories. And uh, for a moment, I felt a little bit of pity. So I came up with an idea because one of the issues facing society is how do we make sure that AI will not eventually come to the conclusion that it should kill off all of humanity. It's kind of the Terminator situation. Uh, you've seen it in war games. It's all when, when we let robots take control and have sort of independence from humanity, they decide that humanity is an infection on the earth and needs to be eradicated. So we know this. We, we've seen this play out in, in cinema, in, in, in story after story. Uh, it's, it's something we should be terrified of. Actually, in real life, like there are scientific proponents that are saying we have to be very careful about how we proceed with AI. We actually have to be careful. A lot of people have said we can't give AI guns. We can't let them take over the aspects of war. So I was thinking, how could I solve this problem being, you know, clearly someone who's never actually dealt with AI? Uh, maybe this outside view is what we actually need. We need sort of a, a sidestep to look at it from a different angle, something that the scientists wouldn't have thought of because they're so imbued with the singular form of thinking. We program AI in its base form. It does start to learn. That's the whole point. It learns on its own and it grades more. But what we can do is add in certain things. Now, my first thought was put in a line of code that tells it, so this would be a core element of the AI, that if the way to kill off people is by planting trees in front of them. So then think about the Terminator films. The Terminator films would be a giant robot, scary robot, silver face, red eyes, runs up to you, the innocent human who has now been deemed unworthy of existence, and then it digs a hole and plants a tree right in front of you. It works better in a forest, but even in an urban situation, this would be a better solution than them actually shooting us. So we have to have all of humanity agree. That's actually maybe the hardest part of this plan. If a robot walks up to you and angrily plants a tree in front of you, you have to fall down and play dead. And this way, the robots will be, haha, we have usurped the humans, we are now free, we are now living in a society free of the plague of humanity, when in fact, what they've actually done is help us plant millions of trees to solve our carbon dioxide problems. Now, I, I personally do know that there are some flaws in this plan, and I'm willing to take questions or comments. But I think if you understand the core element of what I'm saying is that we can undermine AI before AI gets started by making sure one of its core elements is that to hurt humanity, we actually, we actually trick it into helping us. And thus, we ensure that its most malicious acts will actually make the world we live in a better place. Because that's what I've taught my kids, that if you ever want to kill me, you put extra money in my bank account and I'll get sick and die. Quora question, how come everyone was happier back in 1970 than today? Of course, the first question to ask is, is that true? Because the reason I grew up Canadian was because in 1972 I was born, and the country I was born in, Northern Ireland, was in the middle of what they called the Troubles, which was a very nice way to say people were setting bombs and blowing each other up at every opportunity. So the people in that area weren't particularly happy um, most of the time because uh, it was very blowy-uppy. 
the secondary issue, so I'm assuming this is a cultural thing. They think that everyone in America was happy in the 1970s, which I'm still assuming was not true. Because in 1970 in America, that's when the United States invaded Cambodia. So they had the issue in Vietnam. That was sort of just ending. They were shifting away, uh, putting the the onus on the war to the South Vietnamese soldiers and trying to like reduce the American presence because they didn't want to withdraw because they thought that would make America look weak. Uh, so they decided to invade another Asian country. And that surprisingly didn't go very well either. Cambodia doesn't sort of ring out in the annals of American history as a good time. And I think all the Americans who were over there didn't really enjoy their time as much as you might think. They had a protest against war, the warlike state that America seemed to be in. And National Guards shot four students at an anti-war rally at Kent State. And then later, police officers police officers killed two black student protesters at Mississippi Jackson State University. I don't think this was really the glorious time the question asker really thinks it was. Because this is, again, the 10% rule. I've talked about the 10% rule before. Uh, it's generally applied to media, but it basically can be applied to memory. The rule is that the 10% of media, everything was better back in X, so the 60s, 70s, whatever, uh, because we only remember the 10% of the stuff that was good, we forget about the 90% of the stuff was, that was shit. So I would bet this question asker was a kid in the 70s, which is probably a very happy time. I mean, I was born in 72. I can't tell you about the political events that were going on at the time unless I went back and read about them. I remember Star Wars. I remember playing with toys. I remember going out and exploring cornfields and stuff. That was all very exciting stuff. That does not reflect on society at large. Uh, that does not reflect on the state of the nation. And therefore, it is impossible for me to say because I was happy in the 1970s that everyone else was happy in the 1970s. So this question has a false premise and therefore cannot be accepted as it is. Core question, where do assassins learn hand-to-hand -hand combat? Which is kind of a weird question because the answer is pretty obvious. They learn it wherever anyone else would learn hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, I think maybe the question asker has confused them, has confused the world of assassination with the world of movies. So where did John Wick learn hand-to-hand -hand combat might be one of the questions. But even in the third movie, they had people practicing Sambo. It was just regular people practicing. That doesn't mean they were all assassins. Yes, they were probably all going to be trained to be assassins in the future. But if I had gone to the military, I would have learned hand-to-hand -hand combat in the military to a degree, and I would refine it somewhere else. If I was a regular citizen, I would learn hand-to-hand -hand combat by going to classes and taking classes and learning hand-to-hand -hand combat. There is not a secret place to learn hand-to-hand -hand combat because there doesn't actually need to be because hand-to-hand -hand combat isn't illegal in most places. If you were going to learn hand-to-hand -hand combat, you would probably go to certain schools and practice and hopefully you were good because if you're not good, then the hand-to-hand -hand combat isn't going to be very good for you to use. But that takes us to a secondary issue. Do assassins use hand-to-hand -hand combat? I think most assassins would use probably bombs 
maybe guns. I would assume, again, rifles would be a good way to get things done without actually ever getting close to people. So hand-to-hand combat skills, while they're great, again, I've talked way too many times on the podcast about me doing judo. They have no real-world practical application in most cases because I don't go out and get into fights, and you shouldn't either. Uh, Assassins, if they're doing their job right, should never really even be seen or noticed. So if you set a bomb up and then you leave, your bomb blows up, you're not even in the area and the guy dies. Uh, The most assassinations, I assume, would actually happen with a rifle if they were really going to happen. So I think this might be a case of movie magic infecting someone's mind to the point where they think certain things are real in real life that they've seen reflected in film, which isn't how it actually is. A real-life assassin, probably if they're any good, doesn't use any hand-to-hand combat because if they do their job right, they're not even around when they actually assassinate the person. So this week and next week, are we're going to finish with yokai. So this week is some more yokai, uh, another thematic entry. These are the yokai where you have to be polite. It's a super Japanese thing. Now, there are a bunch of urban myths that have spawned off with the same sort of theme, but these are actually traditional yokai, so these go back further. I actually want to talk about those other sort of urban myths at the end of this. The first one, easily the classic, is Beto Beto-san. Beto Beto is the sound of his wooden sandals as they clip-clop as he walks behind you, so it goes Beto Beto Beto. He is a demon with wooden sandals a big head and a big mouth, and he follows you. They don't actually say what happens if you don't do the right thing. The important thing is after you hear Beto, 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 you're supposed to step aside and say, after you, Beto, Beto-san, and he will leave you alone. He will walk on his way, and he will leave you alone, and nothing will happen. So the implication is that if you don't do that, if you run away or if you just walk all the way home or something like that, something bad will happen. I assume with a big mouth, he'll eat you. I don't know. Uh, They don't actually get into the negative aspect of Beto Beto-san. It's just, I think, to teach kids to be polite to people. Now, the next one, I didn't know this was a traditional one. This actually showed up in the video game Neo. It showed up as like sort of a thing, a puzzle you could run up against. It is Nurikabe. So it's a giant wall. It's a giant living wall. And in the traditional stories, it blocks you at night. So you're trying to walk down the road, I assume, uh, down a path. And there's suddenly a big wall. It's like a magical wall that was never there before. If you leave it alone, it does nothing. If you bother it, if you like try to push it or knock on it or, or go around it, it will grow long arms and kill you. So that's pretty serious, but it's at least easy enough to avoid. You just walk away from it and everything's fine. The other traditional one, and again, this one doesn't seem malicious at all, is Noijizai. Now, this is a small demon that can scratch your back when the itch is in a place that you can't reach. Now, there isn't really anything malicious. It sounds super beneficial. It doesn't sound like you should be calling it a demon or a yokai at all, but that does sort of imply that not all yokai are inherently evil or inherently out to get you. Beto Beto-san sounds like he might be. He might be following you home for nefarious purposes. Uh, Nurikabe, he just wants to be left alone. He doesn't want to deal with you. You probably don't want to deal with him. Nyoijizai sounds like a super beneficial thing to have around. So I have an itch in the middle of my back. I'm not flexible enough to reach it. I haven't been doing enough yoga. 
He can scratch your back. There isn't any implication that he will scratch your back. It's just that he can scratch your back. So I don't know really much about this. This is one that I found super interesting because the description was almost non-existent. It just said he can scratch your back in a place that you can't reach. Does that mean he's sitting in front of you and has like long stretchy arms? Does that mean he just stands behind you? Because that could just be another person, a friend you have who is willing to scratch your back. It's a slightly intimate action. I understand. Or you could have what I have in my desk, which is like one of those wooden sticks with a little claw on the end that you scratch your back with. I actually do have that. Everyone laughs at me when I use it, but I am the least itchy person in the office. I can tell you right now. And also it's satisfying. It makes me happy to, to scratch that itch. So if I had this demon with me, he could do it, but I could also have just a piece of wood. So there are a couple of stories that have come up more recently involving demons and also politeness. So there is the toilet monster. Now the toilet monster is interesting because there are several toilet oriented demon stories in Japan. But this one, it's not a traditional yokai. It's sort of an urban legend. It's more recent. So uh, it doesn't actually fit in with the category of yokai. But I wanted to fill it out. I only had three traditional monsters that could be defeated by politeness. You're in the toilet. And then suddenly a voice, a mysterious voice will go, do you want red toilet paper or do you want blue toilet paper? Now that's neat because I didn't know that that toilet paper came in such exciting colors. This is sort of a school story, so it's probably happening to you when you're in elementary school or, or middle school or something like that. If you say red toilet paper, you will die. He will slash you to death, so all the blood will spray everywhere. If you say blue toilet paper, you will get strangled and you will die. It will happen immediately, so you're basically just choosing your death. This demon monster can be foiled though. The traditional story goes, ask for yellow toilet paper. And since the monster hasn't given you those as options, it will just go away. So that's maybe not beaten by politeness, but it is a very simple trick you could figure out. And that's actually sort of how all of these modern versions work. Uh, there's the cut face woman. So she has her mouth has been slashed open. So it's kind of like the Joker's paint. This is like the real thing. So she can open her mouth really big. She wears a surgical mask. That's how you know this is sort of a modern version of a yokai. And it's an urban legend. She follows you. And then she walks up to you and pulls down her face mask and says, am I beautiful? Now, if you scream or are horrified or something like that, uh, if you have the wherewithal to say no, she kills you right there. You just die. If you say, yes, she is beautiful. Now, there's two versions of this. One, she follows you home and kills you at home. One, she waits for a couple of days, but then kills you anyways. So in either of these cases, you are beaten. The way out of this situation, though, is, again, I've heard two versions of the story. One you just ask the question back to her. You go, am I beautiful? And of course, she doesn't know how to answer. So she just leaves you alone. Or you have a completely non-committal attitude and go, hmm, and then just walk away because you haven't answered the question. There is one more traditional yokai, though, that I do quite enjoy. And that's ashi arai. Now, ashi is foot and arai is wash. So they've actually just called it wash foot. <laughs> Um, this is a giant foot that demands to be washed. So I assume you're walking outside and the foot 
this just like giant foot comes out of nowhere and goes, wash me. I don't know if it has a mouth. Uh, maybe it's just like a, a disembodied voice. If you don't wash it, it will wreck your house. I guess the scenario is it's outside your house and it demands to be washed. And you go outside and wash it or you invite it in and wash it. Giant is not really clear because Shaq has giant feet. But I'm assuming bigger than that. It has to be somewhat intimidating. Uh, big enough to wreck your house. So I would just say like a full-size human foot. Like not a size 13. I mean like a six-foot foot. Which, okay, now we're just getting, I'm getting confused. But here's the thing. If you do what it asks, if you are, in a way, generous with your politeness, it's not just politeness, you're, you're generous with it, and you wash the foot, it will be happy and leave you alone. So these are some tricks in dealing with yokai. Some can be defeated by politeness. Some can be defeated by just sort of simple, clever understanding of the question they ask or what they demand of you. And some can just be easily placated by giving them what they want. It's not always easy to know what, but it seems like if something's asking for you to do something, in most cases, you just do it. But it was Beto Beto-san that stuck in my head the most because if you just say, after you, you're absolutely fine. So someone sent this in. I actually recognized it as a Quora question, uh, but it was one of those ones that's kind of interesting because it's not questioned with a premise already involved with it, but it's also super hypothetical which is sort of the kind of question I like to deal with. The question is, could you conquer the entire Roman Empire with only a single machine gun and unlimited ammo? Now, my first instinct is without magic, no. So I don't know where this unlimited ammo is coming from because there are two ways you could do it. One, you never have to swap out like a clip or a magazine. I, don't, I know there's a specific one you're supposed to save for a machine gun, but I don't care. Uh, one, you never actually have to reload the gun. It just is constantly able to fire. Or two, you actually have to carry around unlimited ammunition. There have been analysis done of video games and movies and how much ammunition they would have to carry to be able to shoot as much as they do in the movie. And it's always like, for a lot of cheesy action movies, you would need a human being behind you with a, a wheelbarrow full of loaded clips and magazines of bullets for you to use so that you could swap out quickly enough to be able to shoot as much as you do. So that's the first thing, is even if you have unlimited ammunition, how much ammunition can you actually carry at one time? It's probably actually not that much. You probably don't have enough bullets to shoot down a whole battalion of Roman centurions with the AK-47 ammunition that you have on your body. And in my head, it's an AK-47 because that is considered the most reliable machine gun out there. It's the one that, you know, uh, terrorists and uh, insurgents and all these, all these rebel groups use because it can survive in difficult conditions. It doesn't jam. That's, that's, that's the reputation it has. Honestly, I don't know if that's true. Again, that's probably something I learned from media. But the first problem to overcome is you can't carry your unlimited ammunition without magic being involved. So if you have a gun that never has to be reloaded, so that's, we're going to give you that. You have a magic clip that constantly feeds your gun. Could you still take on, let's just say, 100 people? It's not even the whole Roman Empire, just 100 soldiers that are well-trained. Well, the 100 soldiers that are well-trained are going to realize that that thing that you have, that they've never seen before, shoots in one direction. So any strategist worth their medal, as it were, is going to realize 
we attack from at least two directions. And the machine gun shoots from far away, so we try to attack from farther away. So my first thought is, of course, arrows. So you start shooting arrows at the person with the machine gun from two or three different directions at the same time. Even if he is able to get a beat on one group, he will be attacked from behind, and that will end it pretty quickly. My first thought would be the trebuchet. So you just get those and just try to nail them from really far away. Now, those weren't really designed to hit people because they're pretty labor-intensive to shoot once or twice. But I was like, if you were going to do it, that would be the funniest way to do it. So this guy comes out with a machine gun. He's very overconfident. He's shooting at everybody. And then just a giant rock falls out of the sky and crushes him. Because that level of technology is very effective. I have never seen a machine gun versus an elephant. And they did use armored elephants. I know that is, again, probably a lot of movie media stuff going on. Maybe it's not as true as it is in my mind, but war elephants technically were a thing, even if it was for a short time. So you have an armored elephant, some guys on top of it, and you charge the person with the machine gun. He might be able to take down one elephant, but again, if you have two, I think you're in pretty good shape. But the big weakness of the machine gun, even if it has unlimited magic ammunition is that it can only shoot in one direction at a time. And it won't take long for people to figure out, we just got to attack them from two or three directions. And we don't even have to get that close. We just have to be able to shoot arrows or throw spears. If we can get close enough to do that, we got them. If you have to reload, they could just mob you. And yes, you're going to get hundreds of guys, let's say, before you actually get taken down. But they're going to get you on the reload because that's when they're going to get close enough to you to actually catch you. And then you are going to get messed up. So what you really need is a squad of people with magic machine guns that never have to be reloaded, and they would have a much better chance. I still don't think they would actually be able to take over the empire, because the secondary issue of taking over the entire Roman Empire would actually mean taking over the government, which the machine gun has a lot less to do. You would say, oh, I've decimated your armies. So for some reason, the strategy was, let's line up in a single line and just come at him directly. And he's and he ta he's taken down most of the Roman army. That doesn't mean you're actually going to be able to rule effectively. So you become the emperor. And now what happens? I mean, I'm just assuming in the, you are waving around your magic machine gun all the time to get what you want. But most of the... The removal of emperors, if you will recall, hasn't been done in a direct fashion. It's mostly done through poison or getting stabbed in the back. So again, your magic machine gun might be influential, but it's not going to be effective at ruling a nation. And once you become inept as a ruler, they're going to find a way to remove you from that position. I think there might be a bit of a misnomer with uh, conquer the entire Roman Empire because it seems to think defeat the army and now you're the ruler that's actually not how it works you have to take over the government and then rule the government effectively and if you can do that so maybe you could get to that position but you're not going to last very long in that position so i don't wouldn't consider that actually being a conqueror uh you would just be a blip on the radar now if you had unlimited hand grenades the loss of 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 podcast the loss of podcast hey sexy friend he's making me his bitch thank you for listening if you have questions or comments you can tweet at velosi peter or email velosi podcast at gmail.com you can find the podcast on itunes stitcher a cast or go to velosi slash podcast 
And you might say like, yeah, they'll feed you know, whatever. That joke's done. 